0: Welcome to another installment of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. In this episode, we're going to be hearing from Valerie McGuire, whose new book entitled Italy's Sea explores a largely forgotten chapter in the history of European colonialism, the Italian occupation of the Dodecanese Islands, located in the Southeast Aegean Sea between mainland Turkey and Greece.
1: I thought maybe I might find someone to speak Italian with me. Um, At the time my Greek was very, very, you know, rough and I was just learning and I thought I want to do these interviews but I'm not quite sure who I will find to speak with me. And in fact I found many, many people who spoke Italian and were very, very eager to have the opportunity to, you know, dust off their Italian that they had learned in school. You just had to find someone over, you know, 65, and you could almost be guaranteed that they had had some contact with Italians.
0: The Dodecanese have been part of Greece since 1947, and for centuries they were controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Italy's presence in the Aegean was limited to the decades between the First and Second World War. But as Maguire argues in her new book, these islands deserve a more prominent place within the history of Italy and European imperialism writ large. Rather than a fleeting occupation, Italy's presence in the Dodecanese represented a historical rupture brought by a concerted colonial project. In this podcast, we'll learn about that Italian imperial project and the series of events leading to Italian annexation of the Dodecanese islands. We'll explore the impacts of fascist rule there and the creation of a form of nationality called Italian Aegean citizenship. At the end of the podcast, we'll offer a more complicated understanding of Italy's legacy in the Aegean, which is obscured today by both amnesia and nostalgia. Il pittoresco deve iniziarsi poeticamente e perciò vi invitiamo a visitare Rodi togliendo un inno al suo clima dolcissimo, al suo cielo radioso, al suo mare di smeraldo. Questa bianca città che sposa il fascino dell'Oriente musulmano, alle memorie gloriose del Medioevo cristiano, offre oggi al turista tutte le comodità di un'ideale stazione climatica.
1: You think of these islands today which are popular destinations for cruise tourism charter travel they feature in films as romantic vacation destinations and mass tourism but these weren't off the beaten track locations they were very very much central precisely because of kind of the unusual geography of the islands and that special place that they lie within the Mediterranean, the Southeast Aegean. So they were for centuries at the crossroads of all kinds of trade routes between Europe, North Africa, the Eastern Mediterranean or what at that time was called the Levant, the Black Sea in Russia. And for this reason, they're kind of this node at the center of a big network of trade and mobility between different empires in the region. I'm Valerie McGuire. I'm a lecturer of Italian and comparative literature at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And my specialization is Italian colonialism and post-colonialism, but uh, I have a forthcoming book about what I define as Italy's colonial occupation of the Dodecanese Islands in the Southeast Aegean, which is a chapter of Italy's imperial history that hasn't been much studied and really falls at... The crossroads of a bunch of different histories of Ottoman history, of Mediterranean interwar imperial history of Italian colonialism, uh, and also has kind of a contemporary afterlife and contemporary reconsideration in light of the the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. 18th and 19th century, they're actually quite wealthy. They have many uh, traders that originate from the islands. There's a huge shipbuilding industry on the island of Simi, which is making ships for the austro habsburg Empire. There is uh, sponge fishing, which is this huge commodity on the market. The location of the islands means that you have kind of migrant or you have mobile families. So they might have a part-time home in these islands and then spend part of the year in Alexandria or Izmir. At the same time, this whole situation is, of course, under the Ottoman Empire. They were under the Ottoman Empire from 1522 onward. The occupation, the Ottoman occupation, which is known in Greek as the Turkokratia, the Ottoman domination of Greece, begins in 1522. Prior to Ottoman uh, domination, the islands are kind of colonies within the Venetian Empire. They're part of the Venetian expansion into uh, the Aegean, and they've also been held as an armament by the Christian Knights Crusaders, uh, Knights of St. John, uh, who have been using the islands as a Base for launching further attacks into jerusalem so the ottoman period begins uh is this kind of end of the christian mediterranean and christian uh, dominance into the eastern aegean and towards jerusalem and it really solidifies the turkish hold on the mediterranean and it's you know, the falling of roads as mentioned by Brodell as kind of the signal watershed event for the whole Mediterranean. And, and they stay like this uh, as important crossroads under the Ottoman Empire for several centuries. Uh, the Ottoman presence, as I go into um, briefly in my book, is also, you know, it causes the Jewish population in the region to grow in size as well. Uh, So, by the time of the 20th century, you have this mixed population of Christian Jews and Turks in the islands, just as you had, generally speaking, in the Ottoman Empire, but at the same time, you have some islands which are entirely Greek populated. What happens in the early 19th century is that there is, of course, the first revolution in the Balkans, which is the Greek uh, national revolution for an independent nation state. And a small part of the population does participate in this revolution, but ultimately, Greece, guided by the British Empire, trades out the islands for Evia, which is much closer to Volos and Athens, and it's a much larger island. And so the islands stay for another century under Ottoman rule, unlike the rest of Greece. During this time, the Ottoman Empire, of course, is trying to modernize itself, and it does grant a form of capitulation towards parts of the islands, which means that they come to be called as the privileged islands. Uh, because they are exempt from Ottoman taxation, and they have a lot of independence in terms of civil administration. And they're looking towards uh, Greece for new uh, ideas about design and development um, in their industries. But at the same time, they're still uniquely free from many of the kind of national uh organizations and structures that will define the, the 20th century. Um, and this situation of the capitulation lasts until there's the a growth of nationalism in Turkey, at which time the young Turks come to power and they begin levying taxes again, undoing the capitulations. And this leads to a situation of contempt for the Ottoman Empire. And precisely in that moment, Italy moves in in 1912 to take the islands for their own empire and they are greeted as liberators. The local population believes that they are there to liberate them from Ottoman rule. Italy in the meantime is this new nation state. Uh, It's the last uh, country in Europe to unify and create a unified nation state only becomes uh, independent from foreign rule itself in 1861. And it has a very, very uh, difficult unification. It's not successful in integrating necessarily the southern half of the peninsula. This is uh, well-known so-called southern question that there is this north-south divide in Italy, which still hasn't managed to be mended. And the economy collapses in Italy uh, following the unification because the integration is really unsuccessful and southerners in Italy are migrating in droves. Um, there is all kinds of discussions about the failure of the unity and whether nationalism can survive and one of the real kind of fantasies and remedies for that is well we need an imperial project. Uh, we need to have overseas markets really in order to grow our economy. We need to be like France and Britain and uh, be extracting resources from abroad. And we need to start uh, colonizing parts of Europe, the Balkans and North Africa, just as the other great powers are doing at this time with the decline of the Ottoman Empire. One of the issues that I look in my book kind of as a a framing for what will happen eventually in the Dodecanese and in Libya is the failure of Italy to achieve a mandate in Tunisia where it has a large Italian community. This is a really important moment because it will also, in my reading, define some of the parameters for what they do later in their state building projects in the Aegean and Libya. A few decades pass and it becomes clear to Britain and France that at some point, Italy has some sort of claim, legitimate claim to a territory in North Africa. And in 1911, which is precisely 50 years after the unification of the peninsula, these nationalists, Italy is under a liberal government, but these nationalists convinced the liberal government under Giolitti that they must go to war to achieve this kind of space in the Mediterranean and they launch an attack against the Ottoman Empire and they occupy Cyrenaica and Tripoli and they then eventually annex this province calling it Libya which is of course this Roman name because one of the key points here is how roman empire can be a unifying idea of uh, a successful nation state but a successful nation state that incorporates the entire peninsula because the only other time that italy has ever been unified was during roman imperial rule of the mediterranean the war in libya drags on longer than they hope um, than they anticipate and in order to really force the Ottoman state to come to terms, some sort of agreement with with Italy over uh, Libya, they invade the Aegean. What is interesting to discover about that is that they're able to do that because the Austro-Hapsburg Empire and Germany, with whom Italy is allied at the time, agree to the idea that the Southeast Aegean the Rhodes and the other Dodecanese islands are actually part of Asia and not part of Europe. They're so far to the east that they aren't technically speaking part of the Balkans. They're actually part of the Eastern Mediterranean, the Levant. And so they take the islands. And at this point, precisely because of the strategic location of uh, the islands, the Ottoman Empire is really blocked in terms of how it's going to send arms through the Mediterranean Sea to help its forces in North Africa and this leads to a treaty of peace with uh, Italy over Libya initially Italy promises that it will return the islands to the Ottoman state once they've completely evacuated all of their Turks from Libya but of course this is completely unrealistic uh, pretense it would be impossible to have all Turks leave Libya all of a sudden and so this such the stage for a kind of permanent uh, imperial project within the Southeast Aegean and within the Dodecanese islands. Eventually, with the First World War and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, it's only a matter of time before these initial treaties that Italy made with the Ottoman Empire become a long-standing annexation to the Italian state after the First World War. the centennial of the First World War uh, there was a lot of discussion about how kind of under valued and under-studied Italy was during the course of the First World War and people talk about the Balkan Wars as being kind of the first sparks of the First World War but actually you can look at Italy's invasion of uh, Libya and the Aegean in 1912 just a couple years earlier in 1911-12 as one of the first shots being fired of the First World War that first kind of moved completely to the Ottoman Empire empire. Italy at this moment is very committed to expansion. And if Greece imagines that the Aegean Sea um, and occupying the entire Aegean would reprise kind of the borders of Byzantine Empire, tethered to this metaphor of Roman Empire and the idea that Italy should also be having a large Mediterranean state, in the Aegean. And so at the same time that in the kind of fallout of the First World War ends in 1918, but then the aftermath of that, of course, is the Greco-Turkish War when Greece attempts to conquer or to lay claim to the Aegean, um, the Eastern Aegean port cities of Izmir, And so forth as part of its nation state at the very same moment, Italy, of course, moves into the Aegean and has a kind of Asia Minor campaign and lays its claims to those territories. It goes in as far as Antalya, where it even manages to open an Italian school during its occupation. There's also all kinds of reports that it sort of you know, betrays Greece, saying it's going to be its allies in one moment, and the next moment turns around and kind of turns them over to the Turks in Izmir. It's, it's a really interesting area of study, which people are still kind of thinking about. Um, what was Italy's involvement in the region? One other piece to add to that, of course, is that in 1915, it's... Italy's decision to enter into the war on the side of the French and British as opposed to remaining with its traditional allies of the tradition of the Triple Alliance is motivated by a desire for for greater national territory what's always been the focus in the historiography is the promise within kind of northwest Italy or northeastern Italy, the Triestine Alto Adige area and kind of an expansion of the Italian nation state at its borders or into Croatia and Istria, these areas of the borderlands. But part of the Pact of London, the secret treaty that Italy signs with the French and British in order to go into the First World War on their side does include the Aegean. So they promise uh, Italy permanent control over the Aegean islands in exchange for they're entering in First World War on their side. Of course, one of the famous um, events of the First World War is kind of the victoria mutilata, as they call it, the mutilated victory that although Italy wins the war, the great powers renege on all of these promises to italy which then leads to a bunch of events and eventually most importantly the rise of mussolini and fascism but you also have gabriello D'Annunzio's march on fiume to occupy croatia but in the meantime one of the pieces that's also going on is this determination to also create a permanent uh, annexation of the aegean a permanent foothold in this region It's always hard to imagine how could these islands have been so valuable to Italy. And I think that that has really stymied kind of taking the whole area seriously. But it was strategically, it was very, very important for the Navy, right, to hold those islands meant to hold part of the Mediterranean in a moment of contested sovereignty in the Mediterranean. So we can think about that happening on numerous occasions. Returning to the whole war in, quote, Asia Minor and Anatolia, it's actually from Rhodes that Italy is able to send a a military units to occupy parts of the Aegean. So there's that, there's the military reasons that in a kind of chessboard game of control over the Mediterranean, holding the Dodecanese Islands is uh, very, very useful. But then there's also the question of all of these Italian migrant communities within the Ottoman Empire. I spoke about Tunisia, how there's a very large community of Italians in um, Tunisia, but there's also huge uh, communities of Italians in cities like Izmir, Istanbul, Alexandria, so the idea is that by occupying these islands and creating kind of a center of the extension of the Italian state, Italy would be able to forge greater ties with these wider diaspora communities. This suggestive
0: panorama, which sembra un verde angolo della nostra penisola, ondulato di colline su cui spiccano nitide, levigatissime strade carrozzabili, non vi inganni, siamo proprio in Terra d'Africa.
1: Mare Nostrum, our sea, Uh, it was a Latin expression, of course, from Roman Empire, the time that it's most famously articulated is after the invasion of Ethiopia, when Mussolini greets a crowd of uh, his, his faithful outside of Piazza Venezia in Rome, and he says, we are going to achieve Mare Nostrum, we are enacting empire between... Ethiopia, Liv- Libya, and the Balkans, Eastern Mediterranean. It's become synonymous with fascism insofar that the cults of Romanita and Romaness is central to fascist discourse. The idea that then fascism should have an empire seems natural and obvious, and although Italy becomes isolated during the invasion of Ethiopia, it's actually when Mussolini reaches his height of popularity. But one of the points that I have been really interested all along in my research is that this Mare Nostrum, this idea of the Mediterranean as kind of the natural space of empire and the natural expression of of a strong and healthy Italian nation state is much bigger than just the 20 years of fascism. It's a, idea which sustains Italy for the entirety of its nationhood. It begins, it's part of the unification. Um, you have uh, thinkers like Mazzini, who was very much a liberal nas- democratic nationalist uh, who also believe that there should be empire in the Mediterranean. And I think you can still see it today in the way that Italy assumes this very important role in Deciding how Europe should be dealing with the migration crisis in the Mediterranean. It was always thought of as kind of the least significant empire, confined to just a few um, territories in East Africa, um, short lived accomplishing nothing not exporting its ideology or culture but more and more if you think about the ways in which emigration italian emigration overlapped with an imperial project and this includes kind of italian emigration to buenos aires or new york city even but also within the mediterranean that these italian communities abroad created economic possibilities, including remittances, including connections with business and possibility of establishing corporate ties with other companies in the Mediterranean. Of course, there's a very, very wealthy community. Just as the Greek community in Alexandria is very well known, but so too is there uh, Italians and Italian nationalists who are actually from Alexandria. So occupying Rhodes and the other islands in the Southeast Aegean is really an opportunity to close in those ties and those bonds to the whole, the whole Eastern Mediterranean and Aegean seaboard. And it's also a possibility of exporting Italian culture. At this time, of course, France has kind of this very sophisticated and developed uh, school system. They have French schools all over the Eastern Mediterranean. But what about achieving the same with the Italian language. And Italian nationalists are very keen to remember that during the Venetian Empire, Italian was the lingua franca of the Balkans. This was the way that a bunch of different ethnicities and religions and linguistic groups could communicate with one another. And it was also the language of bureaucratic documents. So there's this idea that we can recuperate some of this cultural and political preeminence uh, through Kind of a laboratory and a focus point within the Aegean. In some ways, it doesn't fit obviously into the resettlement paradigm because we are talking about a territorially minimal space. I mean, these are not massive islands. You don't also necessarily. It doesn't lend itself to kind of an extractive uh, mentality. You're not going to go there and um, you know call the territories for different resources. It's more in the ways in which it kind of presents a a cultural hub, uh, an imperial hub for greater connection with other places which Italy would like to um, eventually achieve colonies within. In some ways, it might be more appropriate to think of it as kind of an imperial project, but I find these distinctions a little bit nebulous. It's a little when I did my research, I was very much struck by the fact that what really sets the Dodecanese apart from Libya in the minds of the Italian government is the fact that you don't have a you know, you don't have a Bedouin population, you don't have a black African population. So in some ways they need to have a higher status within the kind of hierarchical architecture of Italian policies. So I don't think that makes them not colonial. I think it's just a different colonial logic. Very interesting how the discourse works about that. They say that this is a population that doesn't need civilizing, it just needs assistance. Um, And I'm not sure how you think about the distinction there. Of course, there is some resettlement. There are Italian Colonizers uh, sent to the islands, and this increases over time as the as the mania for Italian colonialism increases. And you, but you do eventually have kind of land reclamation schemes, which are really the one of the main features of Italian fascism and Italian colonialism. This idea that you will t- regenerate rural territories and make them into make them much more productive do have this effort to you know, bring the local population into fascist ideology through fascist organizations like the trade union or youth organizations. So there are many colonial projects, certainly, within the context of what they defined as an imperial rule. It's obviously one of the issues which has characterized discussion of the dodecanese can we define this as a colonial project wasn't it just an example of italian colonialism light as it were you can see all kinds of similarities between some of mussolini's projects within italy and his projects within the Dodecanese. If you're familiar with the city Latina in Italy, which is kind of between Naples and Rome and was this emblem of the bonifica, the land reclamation schemes to drain the Campania swamps and make it into farmland, you can travel to the Dodecanese islands to the island of Leros, and you will find kind of this architectural twin. I mean, the same exact mirroring images of the South and uh, the Aegean islands. What's interesting is this really was an archival discovery. It wasn't something I had planned to set out to investigate or study at any particular length. I was really interested in representation. I come from a cultural studies background. Um, I was hoping to go to the archive and find information about you know Italian documentaries and films that were <laughs> made on the island of Rhodes, um, these kinds of things. And But it really, um, the minute I started to open The archive and look at any kind of documentation, it just leapt out at me It's such an important kind of facet of the way in which Italy ruled and dealt with um, this occupied population. And I would say I was very surprised at first to learn suddenly that they had actually made uh, all of the locals into Italian citizens. But of course, I had to qualify that idea. What does that mean to be an Italian citizen versus an Italian national? What kind of rights did these people have? Um, Could they migrate to Italy? All kinds of questions, you know, leapt to mind uh, in looking at the documentation. And of course, what was created was a form of citizenship which was local. Um, It didn't. The population didn't have the right to vote who was going to be elected in Parliament, not that it would have done much good under a fascist dictatorship at the time, but there was no, they weren't part of a larger sovereign body. They were allowed to vote in local elections. To an extent, they were allowed to choose their citizenship insofar as if they opted not to be an Italian citizen, if they decided instead to be a uh, Greek citizen or turkish citizen they could do that but they that meant that they had to leave uh, and the region in theory although in practice you did continue to find people with other nationalities uh, residing in the islands what it was was a form of imperial citizenship which is something which is kind of um very hard for us to wrap our heads around today because technically speaking we don't hold imperial citizenships today although i would argue that you know there's some exceptions if you think about it deeply enough we hold national citizenships and we are part of a nation state uh, according to our passport but in this period there becomes an increasing need to kind of indicate that the population in some way belongs to a particular empire even if that subject isn't necessarily someone that belongs to the nation state. The dodecanese are a good example of this paradox, because at the time that Italy acquires the islands by the treaties of the First World War, there's this question of what kind of what will be the fate of this local population and there's this massive remaking as you know of the eastern Aegean at that time Those the kind of the first population exchange of a post-imperial post- population exchange was being organized by the British Empire it will be used again in Pakistan and India uh, you know 30 years later to kind of end this incredible internecine violence that has followed the fall of the Ottoman Empire all greeks living in what has been decided to be turkey will have to leave and they will become automatically greek citizens and vice versa all turks that were still living in what was now the official borders of greece needed to migrate to turkey but within this panorama of the population exchange is the very unusual annexation of the islands to italy and so these subjects Uh, in the islands, they effectively need a nationality or all of a sudden they're going to become Greeks and Turks overnight. And Italy is not going to have much claims to sovereignty on the islands any longer. And so they develop this form of imperial citizenship, which means that you are an Italian Aegean citizen. You hold Italian nationality, but you're not considered as a member of the nation state. You are still an other, as it were. Uh, it's a bit kind of like having a permanent resident status in your own homeland. <laughs> this is the, the citizenship that, that Italy develops. Over time, This what's interesting is that I think because of the nationalism and the idea that Italian imperialism was above, was so tightly wound up with the idea of Italian identity, Italianita, the idea that empire was going to kind of create this cohesion that the Italian nation-state lacked. That you see in the Aegean that the citizenship becomes increasingly thicker, which is kind of this term that theorists of citizenship use to describe the levels of citizenship from a complete thickest being what we normally think of with citizenship complete inclusion into body politic right to vote so on and so forth, to very thin which is might be just a right to reside someplace so over time this citizenship becomes increasingly thick in the dodecanese islands Uh, To the point that by 1934, it's possible to kind of up your Italian Indian citizenship and become an Italian national. If you complete military service, uh, which also implies becoming ultimately a member of the fascist party at that time, show your loyalty to the regime, then you can be an Italian national. I don't know that that there were so many instances of Greeks choosing to become Italian citizens and then migrating to Italy. Uh, we don't have so many trace examples of that in the archive. Most of the time, what you found is that people wanted to get a better job. <laughs> they wanted to stay where they were, but they wanted to have a better job, perhaps in the Italian administration. And uh, so a natural uh, step would be to become an Italian citizen. Or uh, alternatively, you could find interesting cases of people who wanted to go and find positions in other Italian colonies. So they wanted to move to East Africa and start a company in East Africa. They would sign up for, you would take a series of classes after, you know, uh, in fascist doctrine, in Italian culture, pass a test, complete and you could actually complete your military service uh, in Italian colonial Eritrea, and then you could start your project there. So you do find many instances of that of, of people who were obviously opportunists, um, and they were working the system as people do today. You know, They decide, well, you know, I live in South America, but I really wanna go and study in Europe, and I have an Italian grandfather. I think I'll acquire Italian citizenship and move to Spain.
0: I am very glad to be able to express my
1: friendly feelings towards the American nation. Friendship with which Italy looks at the millions of citizens who from Alaska to Florida, from the Pacific to the Atlantic, live in the United States,
0: is today deeply rooted in our hearts. This feelings, created by mutual interests, sole contributed to preparation of an ever brighter era in the life of both nations.
1: I grieve the wonderful energy the American people, and I see and recognize among you sons of your land
0: as well as ours, my fellow citizens who are working to make America great.
1: Again, coming back to this idea of sort of this interesting location of the islands, one of the other parts and facets of the history which is really interesting is of course the massive migration which occurs starting in the middle of the 19th century. It's the era of open borders. It's very easy for uh, people from Italy and from southeastern Europe to migrate to developing countries or de- very hi- highly industrialized uh countries like the united states work for several years send home remittances eventually return to the islands you have other destinations as well australia but also in east africa the other um colonies um mining industry in what is today uh, congo but and zimbabwe but at the time were known as rhodesia and belgian congo There, there is significant Movement uh, from the, the local population. They're hardly kind of sedentary. And Italy, actually, because of its own situation of emigration, is very, very quick to adapt and to recognize how to manage um, this question of the diaspora, the Dodecanese diaspora. And mostly what I observed from the archive is that they find that returning emigrants is it's a huge opportunity for them really to apply Italian nationality to yet another uh, person who wishes to re-enter the islands uh, and secure that person as Italian uh, before they go and secure some other nationality like Greek or or Turkish. And they are also particularly keen to um, naturalize people that, were coming from the eastern aegean from izmir for example who are now refugees uh if they're not turkish either greek or jewish and no longer have um, they've lost part of their wealth but they these many of these people were not kind of rural but they were highly educated um did have money and these are very desirable people to suddenly have come and join this new colonial project within the islands and so italy is what we could call relatively in the first 10 years we could call it very liberal and it's kind of granting of italians uh, nationality to just about anyone who applies f- for it of course there's some caveats which is if you apply at that time for italian citizenship you are just as now you would have a back you have a you know, significant background check uh, they drop all of your records and they do examine whether you know, what kind of attitude you had towards the fascist state and if you were clearly a, a greek nationalist or a communist, I mean, it was obvious at that time that your your petition for Italian nationality would be rejected. This does shift over time as the Italian state becomes increasingly leveraged. Obviously, the empire is costly. They're not necessarily getting back what they put into it. Uh, there are wars in East Africa. Uh, draw an extremely heavy toll um, on both the Italian international image, but also how much money they have. They become more stringent just about who can come in uh, to the islands and who can obtain Italian nationality. This is when it becomes very convenient that suddenly Italian nationality is actually very thin. (laughs) And that means that It's not if you, for example, are caught in the US and the US wants to deport you back to Turkey, let's say, but you are originally from the Dodecanese and you therefore hold Italian Aegean nationality, that is not a citizenship that forces Italy to accept that person back in Italy, nor is it necessarily a citizenship that forces them to, to accept them back in the Aegean that also has a kind of racial logic to it, because what you find here is that as the regime gets more and more discretionary about how it's kind of handing out Italian nationality, you find a big favoritism towards the Greek Orthodox element, whereas the minority communities, Turkish and Jewish communities, effectively lose their rights in this circumstance, and they're kind of consigned to being stateless or Apolids, stateless persons uh, that don't have any right to belonging. In the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, there was kind of this long kind of back and forth between the United States Embassy and the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs about this um, Suleiman, I believe his name was, who had... You know, he got, he was in Pennsylvania and he, they wanted to deport him because he'd been running a brothel. And, uh, you know, that was it. Uh, You know, the, the United States was desperately trying to deport him back to Italy because they said, you know, he holds this Italian passport. And Italy said, no, this isn't actually, this is a very thin status. He's not an Italian national. The Aegean becomes this much more practical destination for most uh, jewish refugees of ottoman collapse and so they began uh, migrating to Rhodes and coasts which are two islands which kind of continue to have this large turkish minority community and so there are there's some sense of minority rights and there are already jewish communities established in those islands because there had been turkish communities there what you find is you find a kind of sophisticated class of refugees. So many cases, they were, for example, notables, people that held public office in either Izmir or Salonika, and they're drawn into what promises to be a great um, Italian imperial project. Uh, they are very pro-fascist, uh, many of them, they see... Mussolini as potentially renovating, reviving Italy, bringing modernization uh, to both Italy and its imperial states. And there are a lot of initiatives during the first decade of Italian imperial rule to kind of promote and rebuild the Jewish community within the islands. It's not just from one day to the next Mussolini allied itself with Hitler, but that there was a kind of long-standing debate about just how this nationality should function uh, within these imperial spaces and to what degree, for example, an Aegean subject might eventually be considered an Italian. And in this sense, Italy begins to lean in heavily on the idea that actually Although by the terms of the Lausanne Treaty, it's been granted sovereignty over the Aegean, there is still this idea that it it belongs to a Greek Orthodox majority, and that these people have the rights to citizenship before Turks and Jews. So if there's pressure within the islands as to how many people can populate it, and We have to remember that this time italy is also thinking we should be populating ourselves we should be sending some italians here as well so space is limited because we're going to start these resettlement programs there's only going to be space now for greek orthodox majority and italians and the minority communities which have previously kind of figured into our discourse now no longer have the same kind of rights, even thin ones, to reside in the in the islands. And you can see this happening slowly in the 19, early 1930s, the mid-1930s, even before the invasion of Ethiopia and kind of the adoption of a, an official anti-Semitic policy. I would argue as well that you can even trace this back to an even older discourse within the liberal era, which was in these kind of discussions about the racial identity of Italians, which happened in the aftermath of the unification, where the hope of a idea of an Italian people has really been called into question by this North and South divide, you have all kinds of um, anthropologists speculating, well, aren't there perhaps two races in Italy? There's a Northern Aryan race, and then there's this kind of atavistic criminal Southern race that was populated by Africa in the South. And against this this strain of thinking, um, you have kind of, you have these uh, anthropologists who are really nationalists, Giuseppe Sergi is one of them, and he's always been kind of marginalized when people talk about these early racial discourses in Italy, but he, what's interesting is he really postulates that actually, not only was Italy populated by one race, but there's actually, it was a, a Mediterranean race, and that there were close correspondences and kind of Italians and Greeks are cousins. We're relatives, Cosanguinity between Greeks and Italians. So this is going back all the way to the 19th century. And you see those ideas that have been germinating and, and, and percolating. They come into full fruition in the 1930s. So ironically, while the Jewish community was some of the most the contingent, that was most enthusiastic about the Italian state, they're the first ones to actually kind of receive the more Persecutionary experience and to have their citizenship, their Italian gene citizenship, is eventually revoked. And for half of the community, that half that had come from Asia Minor or from that were refugees of Ottoman collapse, so they had naturalized to Italian identity and they weren't born in the islands, they actually have their citizenship revoked and they're forced to migrate from the islands. And this is. Obviously one of the first kinds of moments in a stage anticipating what will happen later with the kind of denaturalization of Jews in Europe, the making of them into refugees, which is one of the first stages before then you reach the reach the Holocaust and the sending of Jews to concentration camps. It's a complicated and only recently really uh, discovered uh, story because partly because of the kind of distance of the archive and the way that the um, the islands were never considered central to any particular history, uh, there hadn't been very much examination of, of the Holocaust in the Aegean. It was um, All there was uh, until a few years ago were testimonials. Um, There weren't actual, there wasn't much historiography on it, so survivors of deportations from uh, roads and coasts that occur in 1944 at the end of the war. Uh, But more recently, they actually were able to find the documentation related to it. uh, Thanks actually to the kind of quote the discovery of another archive, which wasn't the administrative archive, but an actual uh, surveillance or Carbonieri archive, which, uh, you know, no archive, as you know, if you've worked in archives, can really be discovered. I mean, there's reams of paper. Uh, it was just that it was sitting there and, and no one thought it was particularly important. The There were some researchers that finally had the ability to kind of um, interact with the Greek state. And convince them that this archive needed to be opened and cataloged and in cataloging the archive what became available were it was clear that although by 1944 this is after the Italian armistice and the Italians are no longer a fascist state that there was still some Italian administration in the islands much of which would have been fascist and still in any case and they actually collaborated to a certain extent with the Germans that began occupying the islands um, after after the armistice in 1944. Italy quickly loses control of the islands, and the Germans reoccupy the Mediterranean, and they occupy Crete and the Aegean, and at that point, they initiate these deportations of the Jewish communities that are still remaining in the islands. There's been a lot of uh, really productive research and, and discussion around this, and it's interesting to see how much has has come to light in the meantime many many of the sephardic jewish community have always kind of labeled the italian state as having been kind of the good italian state in comparison to the german the nazi germans who obviously organized the deportations and so for example and they also interestingly have always thought of themselves as Italian um, and as Italian nationals. So this idea that in fact parts of the Italian state may have been uh, involved in the Holocaust has become, has come uh, as a real kind of shock and interesting to think about how opening archives can kind of really reshake um, the kind of popular understanding of the past. I was so interested in the fact that there was this popular memory that presented uh, Italians as soft or, or good colonists. And I think in my kind of naive doctoral way, I thought initially that, you know, you might be able to assess this this notion and and, and really find out what happened. Is it true that the Italians were just making love to the local women and playing the mandolin which was how it had kind of resurfaced in in popular culture if you're familiar with the book Captain Corelli's Mandolin which takes place on a different island but you know it very much resonates with kind of the local legend about the Italian period in the islands and there is of course also very popular Italian film Mediterraneo, which takes place in Castellorizo and is the Pretty much the pitch opposite of what you would expect from an Italian from a kind of colonial occupation it presents this cliche of Italians who get there and then they don't want to go back to Italy because they're having such a good time on a Greek island which speaks to the contemporary presentation of islands is no longer at the center they're they're the place which you go on vacation to get away from it all to get away from the modern world as opposed to you know an important place in which modernity is happening. Interrogating what was behind this presentation and remembrance of the Italian Empire was what pushed me into the project. I was interested in the ways in which, too, it might resonate with a new understanding of migration in the Mediterranean. And and one of the things that did happen during the course of my research is that then the islands once again did become sites in which people were kind of your first landing in Europe, Uh, the illegal crossing from these large refugees camps from Turkey into Europe, uh, which you could do by fishing boat even, just as during the time of the Italian Empire, people, Turks, were forced to migrate under the cover of night from coasts back into Turkey, uh, in fishing boats because they had lost their their citizenship and their rights to reside in the the islands. So it's kind of hard to how do you think about the legacies of this um, moment. And then additionally, what I found was a big obstacle for thinking about it was the way in which it's narrated within confines of national history so how do we define this place today it's part of greece do we think about it as a space for greek national history or or could we possibly even think about this as a space of italian history to what extent italian programs of fascism and nationalism were mobilized onto the local population to what extent could you think of the local memory reflecting an italian memory of the war, I was interested in this idea as well. I mean, I went to the islands, and I was immediately struck. I thought maybe I might find someone to speak Italian with me. Um, at the time, I, my Greek was very, very, you know, rough, and I was just learning. And I thought well, I want to do these interviews, but I'm not quite sure who I will find to speak with me. And in fact, I found many, many people who spoke Italian and were very, very eager to have the opportunity to, you know dust off their Italian that they had learned in school, obviously a generation. You just had to find someone over, you know, 65, and you could almost be guaranteed that they had had some contact with Italian school. And then kind of the question of how do you think about this transnational space, the space in which that kind of even forms of national belonging have been extremely weak. You've had imperial forms of belonging. You've always thought of yourself as moving within a mobile world, then what kind of memories and representations do you have there and then finally what you come up with is you come up with these kind of communal memories that don't seem to intersect you have a greek memory of the italian occupation following kind of the tradition of greece under foreign domination so in greek the word for the italian occupation is italocratia which reproduces of course the word for turkish occupation turkokratia right so it falls into you know this period of italian rule was just the last chapter before then we were integrated with greece which is where we always belonged that history entirely neglects Both kind of the importance of the Ottoman past for uh, for Greek history, which is something that, of course, scholars like Molly Green have kind of said, this is all wrong. We need to think about the really important ways in which Ottoman Empire shaped Greek culture, Greek culture. It also a still present Turkish minority in the islands, right? So when the islands are eventually integrated into Greece at the end of the war, there is still a a small Turkish minority there that owns his own property there for for centuries. And they you know, they become Greek citizens, but with the minority rights of, of the Turkish community, just as they have in, in Thrace. One really interesting to, debate to follow was the restoration of all of the Italian architecture, which was kind of Italy's imperializing stamp on the islands, was to construct all of these new art deco fascist buildings with all kinds of, you know, exoticizing colonial embellishments and so on. and. And these are a real point of pride and, and kind of architectural heritage among the local population. And was that then a sign of they really liked the Italians, or is it also a sign of wanting to kind of uh, remember their Europeanness in the face of wanting to distance the Ottoman past and the presence of uh, a nearby Turkish Empire in the the contemporary sense so you know they had these big this one very very important landmark within the Rhodes shoreline is what was called by the Italians the new market it's very interesting because the structure of it was actually modeled on the great mosque in Kerouan Tunisia so it's this kind of Islamic mosque like structure but it's supposed to be uh, a market for you know again the resale of all of these artisanal Rural products fitting in with Italy's great Mediterranean um, notion of great Mediterranean Empire. This building needed serious restructuring and, and renovation in order to be able to be a, to use it safely. And one of the kind of ideas was that well they could they could accept Turkish investment, um, but this was ultimately rejected. There was this kind of fear that the Turks would come and they would they would ruin its. Characteristic charm. They would just make it into a shopping mall, and you know it would be a big kind of claim uh, on roads. Uh, and and so what they did is they you know they, they turned to the European Union for funds for for restoration of it. So very interesting to think about how Ita- the restoration and the, the memory of Italian fascism is very useful for moving away from any kind of interaction with their, their neighbor in Turkey. It's hard to summarize how all of these different memories of the, these different communal memories of the Italian occupation, how they might intersect and have some kind of common theme. And, you know, what I really started to think about was how if we talk about nostalgia for Italian fascism, which was something that was talked about at great length in Italy that you know starting in the 1990s we've started to see Italians who traditionally after the second world war have been these kind of committed leftists or christian democrats rejecting their fascist past and you know this kind of opening of let's remember how fascism did some powerful things for the italian nation-states, and and this was in the context of the rise of Silvio Berlusconi and but also kind of the start of immigration into Italy from the Balkans, was this also a kind of nostalgia for fascism and for imperialism and european imperialism in the face of you know changes uh demographic and kind of social changes within the um within greece and within the southeast aegean which now is of course this kind of border for the european union and 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 that's one possibility but i also felt that part of it was just about really some of it the kind of rose-tinted heritage kind of this rose-tinted look at the the past in the islands the italian imperial past is also about kind of a longing for empire uh the idea that the nation state doesn't allow us to have these multilingual multi multinational histories. Uh, It doesn't allow us to think about a space in which Greeks, Turks, Jews, and Italians all go to school side by side. And paradoxically, that is precisely what the Italian state envisioned it would be able to do once it kind of colonized the entire mediterranean that it would be this cultural empire like france and that there would be kind of cosmopolitan italian culture in these cosmopolitan settings with different ethnic backgrounds Uh, and so i think a, a lot of ways some of this memory is kind of longing for for, for something other than the nation-state um, and that it's projected onto these positive memories of the Italian past.
0: Thank you for listening to this conversation with Valerie McGuire about her forthcoming book, Italy's Sea. You can find images and a bibliography as well as related episodes on our website, Ottoman History Podcast.com. I'm Chris Grayton. That's all for now. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us in a future episode of Ottoman History Podcast.